Good morning. Uh, from, the, from the sublime to the uh, tragic, we are focused today on Judas. So it is now Friday morning early. Jesus has about 12 hours left to live. Uh, on Sunday, earlier that week, he had paraded in. It was, the, it was lots of energy and, and sort of a revolutionary moment. Uh, it looked like everything was ripe for this riot and revolt and to overthrow Rome. But then on Monday and Tuesday, Jesus did something unexpected to some, certainly to Judas, who was a zealot along with Simon looking for the overthrow of Rome. He turned and went into the temple courtyard and taught. And as opposed to undermining the Romans, he sort of undermined the Jews. He undermined the Jewish religious authority, the temple. He says, I'm the temple. I'm the intersection of God and man. Uh, the way forward is to me. I am where you go for forgiveness of sins. I'm where you go to be healed. And, and this frustrated um, at least Judas. And so on Wednesday... He betrayed Christ. He went to authorities and offered to turn Jesus in, to identify Christ where Christ was going to be in a quiet moment. And for this, very famously, he was given 30 pieces of silver. And uh, this comes up throughout history, but it's also significant to know because 700 years earlier in Zechariah 11, there had been a prophecy that among the many ways you could tell who the Messiah was is that he would be betrayed for 30 pieces of silver. So I've written about this, I've talked about this from time to time, but it's such a big deal that we miss. I want to I I I rub your noses in it again. So there are a couple hundred places in the Old Testament where very specific descriptions of the Messiah are given. And Jesus perfectly fulfills these. And most of them are things that he could not control, such as where he would be born, how much he would be betrayed for, where he would be buried. So um, when you look at the math here, when you do the odds, right, what are the odds that, that, the, that the person who is going to be the, uh, the Messiah would be male? Well, the odds are one in two. Okay. What are the odds that he would be born in Bethlehem? Well, it's a small town, and so you look at the population of Bethlehem versus the population of the Roman Empire, and you go, ah, it's probably 1 in 20,000. So what are the odds that he would be male and born in Bethlehem? 1 over 2 times 1 over 20,000, 1 in 40,000, right? When you, do, when you keep just adding these up, I did about 10 of them, and I came up with the number, the odds were 1 times 10 to the 17th, which... Uh, triggered my attention because my uncle, who I've talked about in the past, the geologist, chairman of the Department of Geology at the University of Texas for 40 years, uh, when he retired, he filed his number. All sedimentary geologists file a number. It's a joke, but they file a number. It's their guess for the number of grains of sand in the world. Okay, And his number was 1 times 10 to the 17th. So in other words, the odds... That, that one person could fulfill 10 of the prophecies are the same odds that you would go out and find one grain of sand and it would be the grain of sand in the world that had been marked, right? So I, 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 this, this number blew me away. I went to the University of Chicago to a statistics professor and I said, I want to check my math here, okay? This is the what I'm doing. This is the story problem. Uh, and so I come up with this number one times 10 to the 17th. Are my assumptions right? She said, yes, 
your assumptions are right, your math is right. I said, so it's legitimate for me. I go, because there's a lot of smart people in the church that I lead. PhDs in hard sciences, sometimes two or three PhDs. When I say the odds of one person fulfilling 10 of these prophecies is one times 10 to the 17th. I said, I'm not going to sound like an idiot. She goes, oh, well, you will sound like an idiot. Yes. I go, oh, wait, 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 but, the, but I'm doing this right. She says, right. She says, but there's no odds of one times 10 to the 17th. She says, that's certitude. <laughs> she goes, it's, it's, it's definitive. You don't talk about the odds of one in one times 10 to the 17th. So we have these prophecies. The, the Christian faith is not, uh, as all history, it's not something you can go back and control and run an experiment on and, and get scientifically verifiable proof, right? You can't go back to November 22nd, 1963 and control the variables on the day that Lincoln w- or that Kennedy was assassinated to see whether or not Lee Harvey Oswald actually did it. You can't do that. But you look at the evidence, and we've got incredible evidence, and prophecy is one of those evidences. So, on Wednesday, Judas famously sells out Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. On Thursday, we have the events of the Last Supper, right? So, this is when the Passover meal is transitioned into Holy Communion, and this all happens because Jesus claims to be the Passover lamb. His death is the death that, that, that all sacrifices have been pointing to. He is the ultimate sacrifice. After the meal, he said, uh, one of you is going to betray me, and Judas quietly slips away. Then Jesus says to the remaining, okay, it's about to get bad and ugly. I'm going to die. You're going to get knocked down. You better be resilient. I talked about that a couple weeks ago. Then last week, we followed Jesus and, and the, the ten as they walked out. Uh, as, uh, there was 11 left at this point. They walk out uh, of, the, of, the, uh, of Jerusalem and they head towards the Mount of Olives. And they stop at the base of the Mount of Olives in the Garden of Gethsemane and Jesus prays there. And this is where he, he suffers. And I said last week, he's suffering, I believe in part, because he turns to God the Father for help and encouragement as he heads into this trial and he discovers that Jesus is already turning his back on, or that the Father is already turning his back on him. As he begins to embody sin, he is being ostracized. So we now pick up Luke 22, beginning with verse 47. While he was still speaking, so this is Jesus and speaking, he's talking to the disciples and saying, guys, it would have been nice if you would have stayed awake when I asked you to stay awake and support me. So while he was still speaking, a crowd came up. And the crowd is, there's Roman guards, there's also the high priest, there's some Roman military brass. We see that they didn't give the arrest of Jesus to a bunch of, uh, of, of low-grade flunkies. This, this was a big deal. They wanted to be sure it was done right. There's a number of, of top brass that are there to make sure this goes off right. While he was still speaking, a crowd came up, and the man who was called Judas, one of the twelve, was leading them. He approached Jesus to kiss him. But Jesus asked him, Judas, are you betraying the Son of Man with a kiss? So 
Son of man is a title that Jesus uses for himself. Comes out of Daniel 7. Sounds humble. It's not. Uh, In Daniel 7, the son of man is identified as the one who will be the ultimate ruler over everything, everywhere. Judge of every person. Standing alongside the ancient of days. It's a huge claim to be God. And those that understood it, many didn't. Those who understood it, understood what Jesus was claiming. So he says, you're betraying the son of man with a kiss. Uh, a kiss was a common form of greeting among close friends. There's lots that's been written, lots of speculation about why a kiss is this. Is this uh, Judas sort of saying to Jesus as he betrays him, I'm really with you, I'm sorry, I care for you. Is he turning the knife? We don't know. But he betrays him with a kiss. When his followers, when Jesus' followers saw what was going to happen, which was Jesus is going to be killed. Okay, this is the first century. They're not going to read him as Miranda writes. They're, they're not going to, uh, the, the Jews are, are occupied people. They're not slaves, but they're not Roman citizens generally. So they, they were conquered by the Romans. They're second class. Jesus is going to die. It's pretty obvious at this point. When his followers saw what was going to happen, they said, Lord, should we strike with our swords? One of them struck the servant of the high priest, cutting off his right ear, but answered, no more of this. Uh, and he touched the man's ear and healed him. Then Jesus said to the chief priests, the officers uh, of the twelve, uh, of the temple guard and the elders who had come for him, am I leading a rebellion that you have come with swords and clubs? Every day uh, I was with you in the temple courts. You did not lay a hand on me, but this is your hour when darkness reigns. So, well, hey guys, why are you coming in the dark of night to arrest me, right? Well, the answer is obvious. They, they wanted him away from the crowds because they didn't want a rebellion. And he implies, Jesus implies, what you're doing is dark. What you're doing is evil. And, and this is your hour when darkness reigns. So at this point, four things are going to happen. First of all, the disciples are going to scatter. Peter, and we believe John, will show up at the fire outside of the place where Jesus has been taken and arrested. This is where he will famously deny Christ three times. In Peter's defense, uh, most of the 12 are nowhere to be found, right? They have run, they're in hiding. Secondly, the Romans uh, are going to violate their own religious protocol. So in a matter of a few short hours, Jesus is going to get quote-unquote a trial. He's going to be taken before the Jewish religious leaders. He's going to be taken to Pilate. He's going to be taken to Herod. He's going to go back to Pilate. Pilate doesn't want to, uh, Pilate thinks he's innocent, doesn't want to order him killed, will famously wash his hands before, before saying he should be whipped and then executed. And Jesus will die that day on Friday. Uh, and the third thing that will happen is God accomplishes his plan, right? I mean, Jesus doesn't fight this, although he says he could. He could call down angels. He could survive. He doesn't fight this because this is part of the plan. A deeper magic, to use C.S. Lewis's words, a deeper magic is in play here. Christ is going to lay down his life as, uh, as, as a sacrifice, as the propitiation for our sins. And then, uh, not long after that, not long after Christ's crucifixion, Judas is going to try and give the money back. Uh, and they will not take it. And in Matthew 27, we read that he will go out and hang himself. Uh, he will end his life. He's very frustrated with what's happening. Now, 
if we expand that a little bit longer, we can see a couple other things will happen. First of all, the name Judas will fall out of favor. <laughs> so uh, I won't ask this morning if any of you are named Judas. I've done that for years. I've never met a Judas. Maybe there are some. Uh, lots of biblical names play forward. Mike, uh, Mark, Luke, John, Peter, Paul, Matthew, uh, Mary, Martha, Sarah, Rebecca, Hannah. There's lots of biblical names that carry forward. Judas, not so much. Uh, there has been in recent years a couple efforts to resurrect the reputation of Judas. So there was, uh, uh, in, in the Da Vinci Code, Dan Brown sort of suggests that Judas was one of the sane ones. A few years ago, there was a big splash when, they, when supposedly they had discovered the gospel of Judas, which was a new gospel, and it, it sort of suggested, didn't sort of, it suggested that Judas was working in conjunction with Jesus to betray Jesus because he was the, the chosen heir of what was going to unfold. There are some things that I say are so unbelievable that only a PhD could believe them. Uh, it just, it's, just, it, it, it's not the way forward. So, what are we supposed to do with Judas? There are sermons about this passage that look at whether or not a Christ follower can lose their salvation. Right? Was Judas a Christ follower and then wasn't one? Can we lose our relationship with God? There are lots of discussions about the intersection of divine sovereignty and human free will. Should Judas be held culpable for betraying Christ when it was necessary for God's plan? Uh, I've read numerous articles from a business perspective that say, uh, you know, first of all, it's hard to make a good hire. Even Jesus got it wrong, right, when he hired Judas, and so you should expect to make a couple bad hires. Or that Jesus sort of failed with group dynamics because he had Judas, all the, the rest of the, the disciples were from Galilee. Judas wasn't. Judas was a, was a CPA. He was the treasurer, right? And the rest of them were fishermen and, and, and other more uh, blue-collar trades. And so Jesus didn't do a good job of integrating the team. I mean, I, there's a whole bunch of things that you can read about. These are exercises in missing the point, okay? So one of the benefits... Of the, of the kind of study we've done in Luke, and I've got a lot of, get, taken a lot of grief recently for taking four years to go sort of, you know, three verses and a pile of dust every week just up the middle going through the Gospel of Luke. But one of the benefits, there are disadvantages to this, one of the benefits of this is that you shouldn't miss big points. So here's a big point. In Luke chapter 22, there are two people who deny Jesus. There are two people who throw Jesus under the bus. Right? There are two people who walk away from Christ. Both feel badly. Both feel horrible about it. Right? One of them repents and goes on to become a leader of the church. And the other one is Judas. Right? <laughs> Repentance is a really big deal. The, uh, most of the Gospels early on will feature John the Baptist calling people to repent. The first word Jesus says in the Gospel of Mark is repent. It's, it's a big topic. Repentance is different than remorse, right? Remorse is feeling, is, is being frustrated with the way things are turning out. It's feeling frustrated and bad about, about, uh, about the situation at hand. Repentance is owning that 
and asking for forgiveness. Now, in order to understand and, and, and really get what's going on here, we have to back up and realize we're a lot like Judas. When you hear a list of traitors, and it's, you know, Brutus and Cassius and Guy Fox and Benedict Arnold and whoever it is, on Thursday night when I asked that question, name, name the betrayers at our service over in Highland Park, somebody said, Brett Favre, uh, <laughs> Probably doesn't deserve, for playing for the Vikings, he probably doesn't deserve uh, that, that kind of a rap. But when you hear that list of traitors, I think the right response is to realize that our name should be on that list. So we're a lot like Judas in, one, in three senses. First of all, we want Jesus to bless our plans. Judas was a zealot. He wanted to see uh, the Romans overthrown. So Sunday, when Jesus prayed into town, was, was the day he thought things were going to come together. Right? But Jesus then takes this left turn and, and doesn't go there. He loses all that power he had. He starts to criticize other things in the people. And Judas says, we're missing our moment here. And he eventually betrays Christ. We are a lot like Judas in that sense, in that we want Jesus to bless our plans. And when we see that Jesus isn't going to bless our plans, sometimes we walk away. Peter does not. When Jesus says how hard it's going to be, he asks them if they want to leave, and Peter says, where, where else would we go? You alone have the words of eternal life. So we're a lot like Judas in that sense. Secondly, uh, I think we need to understand we're a lot like Judas in the sense that we deny Christ. Now, I have no big, public, egregious denials of Jesus, and I'd like to think that if somebody put a gun to my head and said, deny Christ or die, that in that moment, I would get the answer right. But there's 10,000 little ways in which we betray Christ by what we say or don't say or do or don't do. And in that sense, we are guilty, right? The good news is that God forgives repentant sinners. But what this doesn't mean is that God forgives mistakers or victims. So hear me out here. There are people who will admit that mistakes were made. But that's about as far as it goes. Yes, I will admit that mistakes were made. There's no personal culpability in that. Yes, mistakes were made. Who made the mistakes? <laughs> mistakes were made. No, that's not what we're talking about. And there are some people who are victims, who have been wronged, absolutely, but who will never own any part in what's going on. This is my parents' fault. This is my boss's fault. This is so-and-so. They did this, and so I had no, no choice. Okay, so let's, let's be clear, right? We are called Sinners, because we sin. It's not a small matter. We have a significant heart wound. <clears throat> a week and a half ago, we had our Ash Wednesday service, start of Lent. And it's a, I think it's a powerful service. So 6.30 in the morning, there's half dozen verses are read about sin from the Old and New Testament. And then I talk for a few minutes about 
what Lent is. It's a, it's, a, it's a season in the life of the church in which we are not to race ahead to the good news. We are to sort of understand and try and personalize and understand that it's our sin that leads to Christ's death, right? This isn't the Christ dying for the sins of the world. This is Christ dying for my sins. And then ashes are a biblical metaphor of, of death and of repentance, and I invite people to come forward if they want to. Uh, and I say, if you come forward, then what I'm going to do is I put ashes on your forehead in the sign of a cross. I am going to say out of Genesis, remember you are ashes and to ashes you will return. And the proper response is amen. So what I am saying to you in a world where everyone else says, you're wonderful, you're beautiful, you should have high self-esteem, you're precious. What I'm saying to you is, remember, you are a sinner and you're going to die. And the right response is to say, yes, I understand that. And I, I'm, I'm, I'm moved every year when we do this because there's these, you know, 10, 12, 15-year-old students line up. And they're young and they're, they're, they're precious and beautiful. And I'm saying, remember, you're going to die and you are guilty of sin. And they say, yes. And I think, <laughs> I don't know that I've explained this clearly enough for people to understand the symbolism of what's going on. But we need to understand and own the fact that we are guilty of sin. There's a diagram that I've used in the past, if we could put that up. This suggests that um, at the point where the intersection uh, occurs, that's when we come to faith in Christ. And, and what usually happens, what's supposed to happen, is we understand there's a, there's, a, there's a gap that develops there between God and who we are, between God's goodness and who we are. And we realize we can't, we gotta, we got to bridge that gap. And so our understanding of how big that gap is is relatively small early on. But as we follow Christ, what should happen is our understanding of how good God is, how powerful God is, how majestic, how holy, how righteous God is, just keeps getting bigger and bigger. At the same time, our understanding of our brokenness and our sin keeps getting bigger and bigger. Right? We go down, not in behavior. Our behavior should improve. But in terms of our understanding of who we are and the gap between us and God, it should grow. And we realize all that much more our desperate need for grace and the love of God. Well, we're going to end the sermon this week a little differently. So there is a play that was written by by Steve Adley Gertis a Pulitzer Prize-winning author, and Jim Martin, a pastor. It's called The Last Days of Judas Iscariot. And in that that play, there is the ending scene is a monologue by a character named Butch Honeywell who uh, has died, and he's carrying on a conversation with Judas Iscariot, who is catatonic. Judas does not respond in any way. But it's just a monologue in which he is talking at Judas Iscariot and sort of processing his own life and guilt. And uh, Siler Thomas, who's one of the pastors at Christ Church, who was um, 
in the play when it was downtown Chicago. He played Jesus. He didn't play uh, Butch or uh, Judas. He played Jesus. Uh, he is going to come and he is going to uh, bring us that monologue from Butch Honeywell. So, uh, I think I'm dead, Mr. Iscariot, and I'm a little concerned about that because I don't think my soul is ready for judgment, but so far, no one has corroborated that I'm dead, so I just don't bring it up, but the fact is that if this is a dream, it's, it's the longest dream I've ever endured, and really, I just, I, I really miss my wife. Mr. Iscariot, is it okay if I tell you that? I remember I, I was with these two girls that night when I first seen my wife, Mr. Iscariot. It was a party at Jimmy Rayburn's house. So Jimmy's mama worked till midnight, so he had the house to himself. And me and these two girls, Susie Heller and Della Mae Robbins, we were just out talking, smoking cigarettes out on Mrs. Rayburn's deck away from the party. I was depressed over something or other, probably because school was ending and Plus, I had just been in the school play. I had played Tom in the Glass Menagerie. It's the first time I'd ever acted. Everybody said I was real good, but now the play was over and school was almost over. And, and for the part in the play, they had given me this real short haircut, like 1940s style. And my ears, Mr. Scared, I, I don't know if you can notice, but they stick out a little bit. So with the short haircut and all, I was feeling a little self-conscious and dumb. And anyways, none too cheery. So anyways, I'm just out there talking to Susie and Della when I see this girl inside at the party. She had, I guess, just arrived, and she had on this red jacket. It was a cheerleading jacket from the high school just across the state line of Virginia, the Red Raiders. And I remember all I saw was this blonde hair and a red jacket and this smile that was, even from distance, just kind of electrifying to the heart, you know? About a minute later, the sliding door to the deck opens up, and she comes out by herself. She's walking towards us. Turns out she's friends with Della from back in the day, from, I don't know, Girl Scouts or Brownies, something like that. But all I, I just remember she was so beautiful. I just remember thinking to myself, I, this is my exact thought, word for word. I ain't even going to bother talking to this girl. So she comes over and says, hello. I just excuse myself right off the deck, head back inside to the party, fixing to say my goodbyes and ski daddle. Anyways, I tried to leave, but Jimmy handed me a beer and, you know, someone starts passing around a bottle of Rebel Yell. And before you know it, I'm sitting on the couch when this girl, my future wife, comes up to me and she says, I saw you in that play the other night. You made me cry. So anyways... Two days later, we went out on a date, and on the way back, I was taking her home when we passed by this house where my friend Dave Hogue used to live, who had died. I hadn't been by his house since he'd passed. The family didn't live there no more, but when I saw that house, I was struck with this feeling, and I asked her if she wouldn't mind if we just pulled up in front of that house and just sat for a moment. She said, sure, so I parked, and we just sat in the car for a while, quiet, not saying nothing, and then... Before I knew it, Mr. Scared, I started tearing up because this kid, he had been a real good friend of mine. And then, and then I started crying, Mr. Scared, because, and, and I, I couldn't help myself. I, I didn't know how to shut it off. But I was real embarrassed that she just held me while, while tears and snot and whatnot just came 
pouring out of me and all over her little white sweater. She didn't mind about that. She didn't mind at all. Well, at some point, I took her home, and we got to her house and went to her door, and we kissed, and it was like, I'll tell you, it was like peaches and dynamite. Before I left, I apologized to her about the crying and all, and she said, don't be a fool, Butch Honeywell. And I smiled, but I went on to explain my meaning, which was, you know, if you want a girl to think you're sensitive or something, then maybe taking her by the house of your dead friend and crying all over her little white sweater might be a good way to pull it off, you know? You know what she said to me, Mr. Scarrett? She just looked at me for a good long while with them all the way dazzling eyes of hers. She just said, well, if it was a trick, then I'm tricked. Well, three years into our marriage, I took a job teaching at the state college. I was popular with the students because I found a way to make them want to learn. One night at the end of the semester, they took me out for beers. I ended up having an assignation with one of the co-eds, a young lady named Lucy. And I got home that night and got into bed next to my wife, drunk as a skunk, and before I passed out, I was looking at her. I always liked to look at her when she was sleeping because she looked so good. I had a little nickname for her. I used to call her my little baby dinosaur because that's what she looked like when she slept, like one of those cute cartoon little baby dinosaurs, like a, like a little brontosaurus, but cute. Next morning, I woke up. She was still sleeping, and what I had done the night before came back to me, and I looked at my wife, and boy, she looked exactly the same as always, except she just wasn't my little baby dinosaur no more, you know? She got up. She didn't know nothing about nothing. Everything was exactly the same as if the night before had never happened, except it wasn't the same. And I knew it. And I had no idea why I had done what I had done, but I had done it. I couldn't be changed. My girl, she got up. She fixed blueberry French toast with maple walnut pecans. I didn't need it. No way I could have eaten it. Nothing was ever the same after that morning, Mr. Scary, you know? I tried a lot of things to make it better. The only thing it ever did was more beer and women. You know who W.H. Auden was? Mr. Scariot? W.H. Auden was a poet who once said, God may reduce you on judgment day to tears of shame, reciting by heart to the poems you would have written had your life been good. She was my poem, Mr. Scarrett. Her and the kids, but mostly her. You cashed in silver, Mr. Scarrett, but me, I threw away gold. That's a fact. That's a natural fact.
<clears throat> so there are two things I would like you to hear as we end. The first is, is that when you hear a list of traitors, right, your reaction should not be, I'm better than they are, but wow, it's amazing that my name isn't on that list because I am also guilty of so many wrongs. And the second thing is that the gospel that we celebrate is not that we are better than Judas (laughs) and therefore God loves us, but that we are every bit as bad, right? Worse than we possibly want to admit to ourselves, but that God's love and grace extends to even us. The good news is better than we dare imagine. So we want to have soft, repentant hearts, understanding our sin and leaning into the amazing grace and mercy and love of God the Father. Two people in Luke 22 denied Jesus and all of us here. (laughs) But God forgives repentant sinners. Let me pray for us. Our Lord and God, we confess our brokenness yet again. Try as we might, we throw away gold. We, we dishonor you, we are selfish, we're full of lust or pride or greed or anger. Any one of a thousand different ways we get sideways, we are less than we could have been. Thank you, Lord God, that your grace and mercy is greater than we dare imagine. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for your uh, work on the cross. We marvel at what you have done for us. Help us each day to lean deeper into that grace and to share it with others. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.